Good evening, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If this is your first time joining me, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller, old-time radio broadcast, as well as original stories. I am your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd. And tonight's episode is entitled, Short But Spine Chilling. Now, as many of you may know, I like to discover and share lesser known radio programs on this platform, as well as radio shows that present short vignettes or narrations, if you will. So tonight, I'm featuring a cluster of (laughs) nerve-wracking tales from shows you might not be familiar with. So, without further ado, this is Terror Radio. The radio series highlighted tonight are as follow. Stay tuned for terror. Late Night Story. The Strange Dr. Weird. Tales of the Supernatural and Vincent Price, A Graveyard of Ghost. Now a quick rundown on each series. Stay tuned for Terror, debuted on NBC in 1945 and was recorded in Chicago. Now this was the brainchild of prolific author Robert Block, who was the author of the novel Psycho which we all know was adapted into a classic movie by Alfred Hitchcock. Now, there are only two episodes available of this series, which you will be hearing tonight. The first being The Boogeyman Will Get You from 1945, followed by Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, also in 1945. After that, we have Late Night Story, Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find any information on this particular program, but the radio play tonight is called The Photograph, and it was first broadcasted on December 23rd, 1978. After that is The Strange Dr. Weird, which first debuted, which first debuted, (laughs) which debuted in 1944 and ended in 1945. Now, this was a sister series to the popular radio program, The Mysterious Traveler. It was produced and directed by Jock McGregor and was written by Robert A. Arthur. And this consisted of condensed 15-minute versions of Mysterious Traveler scripts. The radio play tonight is called Murder Comes Home, which was first broadcasted on December 5th. 1944. After that, we have Tales of the Supernatural. I wasn't able to find any information on this program, but the radio play tonight is called I Shall Rise Again. And we will conclude with Vincent Price, A Graveyard of Ghosts, which was actually an LP he produced in 1974. So, You all know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, 
and listen to Stay Tuned for Terror, which will end with Vincent Price, A Graveyard of Ghosts. Ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned for terror. Stay tuned for shivers and excitement. Listen to Craig Dennis in The Boogeyman Will Get You. Written by Robert Block for Weird Tales magazine and adapted by the author especially for this program. You'll hear it now if you... Stay tuned for terror. And now, here is Craig Dennis in The Boogeyman Will Get You. You're afraid of the dark, aren't you? Oh, but you are. I know all about you. Do you understand? You were afraid of the dark when you were a child. Not because of robbers or thieves or murderers. Children don't think of such things. You were afraid of the dark because of the boogeyman. That's the name your parents used, boogeyman. One of those smart, sophisticated, grown-up words. But there is terror behind it. When you were a child, you knew what the boogeyman looked like. You would see him in your dreams. That black, grinning shape with the wicked red eyes and the clutching claws... You heard his buzzing voice mumbling to you in sleep when you had nightmares. And you'd wake up screaming for your mother. Admit it. You did scream, didn't you? 
now that you're grown up, you laugh about it. But deep down inside, you're still afraid. You say you don't believe such things? It's all superstition. (laughs) Then why are you still afraid of the dark? Why do you keep the lights on when you're home alone at night? I'll tell you why. Because you know it's true. There are such things as monsters. There are such evil beings. And the boogeyman will get you if you don't watch out. Well, what do you think of it? Marvelous. I don't know how you do it, Walter. Great stuff. You say it's part of a new essay? That's right. Looks like I'll have it finished this week. But, Walter, you work too hard. Cooped up all day long in that cottage of yours. Why don't you relax? That's just why I rented the cottage. To stay cooped up and get some work done. A book doesn't write itself, you know. I don't see how you fellas do it. Writing, I mean. Me, I'll stick to the insurance business. Life insurance must be a wonderful thing. You mean to tell me you're not insured, man? Oh, wait a minute now, darling. Walter, you'll have to excuse that husband of mine. He's always trying to sell something. Lewis, let the poor man alone. We invite him over here tonight for a visit, remember? I appreciate it, too. You folks are very kind to ask me in, but I'm apt to bore you with my essays. Bore me? Oh, nonsense. You nearly scared me stiff. Is that why Nancy isn't around? Do I scare her, too? Oh, of course not. The child's probably out with her gang. You know, the Bobby Sox crowd. Nancy is a very remarkable young woman. She didn't strike me as a typical member of the younger generation at all. Well, she isn't really. Nancy is very mature for 17. Too mature, I'm afraid. Sometimes she comes out with something that surprises me. Really? Yes. Now, take what she was saying about you the other day. Oh, I guess I put my foot in at that time. Nancy said something about me? What was it? Oh, uh, nothing. Nothing at all. Matter of fact, I've, I've forgotten just exactly what it was. Please, tell me. I won't be offended. I'm curious. I've noticed that daughter of yours watching me, and I've wondered about it. Well, you'll have to excuse her, Walter. She's just a kid, after all. She said, well, we were talking about why we never saw you in the daytime, out in the tennis court or at the beach. And she said, that's not so strange. Vampires always sleep in the daytime. Vampires? Don't adolescents get the funniest notion sometimes? Yes. Yes, they do. She's awfully interested in you, really, Walter. After all, you're handsome, stranger here at the resort, an older man. I do believe she's getting a crush on you, but tries to hide it by crazy remarks. Calling you a vampire. Where does she get such ideas? Reads too many books, I'd say. Yes. Sly kid, though. I asked her why she thought you were a vampire. Know what she said? What did she say? Said it was because you didn't eat any food. She said what? Nancy said she'd asked around town at the grocery store and the butcher shop and that you never bought any food. I shut her up in a hurry, though. Young lady, I said, apparently you don't know much about bachelor's eating habits. Did you ever hear of places called restaurants? You should have seen the look on Nancy's face when I... Why, hello, Nancy. We we were just talking about you. So I heard. Well, your manners, dear. Aren't you going to say hello to Mr. King? Good evening, Nancy. Nancy, Mr. King spoke to you. Nancy, what are you doing, child? (laughs) She's making the sign of the cross, an ancient custom... It's supposed to ward off vampires. That's a good one. Well, young lady, how come you were running around in the dark tonight? 
Aren't you afraid of evil spirits? Don't joke about things you don't understand, Father. Nancy, that's no way to talk to your father. Where were you? Oh, just walking with Billy Leggett. Up in the hills under the hemlock trees. I suppose that's where you lost your scarf, young lady. My, my... Oh. Oh, yes. I... I didn't know I'd lost it. Well, folks, I've got to be running along. It's getting late. So soon? Yes, it's, it's getting a little late. All right, Walter. See you around. You sure you don't mind walking home alone? Oh, of course not. Maybe we could send Nancy along with you to protect you from vampires. Nancy was a silly little girl. I knew it. But still, she upset me. Maybe it was because she was so beautiful and she hated me so. Thought I was a vampire. Just a silly little girl with a queer idea in her pretty head. I wondered what she was trying to do. At night, when I got back to the cottage, I found out. I stood in front of the door and saw something lying on the path. It was Nancy Scott. What had she been doing here? She said she had gone for a walk to the hills near the hemlock trees, but here was her scarf. And as I opened the door, my hand touched something. A wreath on the doorknob. A wreath of hemlock. Hemlock. That's what you put on the door to keep vampires away. I thought about it all night. What was that girl up to? The next day, I investigated a little. I found out plenty. Nancy had spread talk all over the village. Talk about me, about my habits, how I stayed in all day and came out at night, about my not eating at home. She'd even tried to call New York to check up on me, whether I really had a job and so on. She told the minister I didn't dare come to church and said I had no mirrors in my house because a vampire couldn't look into mirrors. This wasn't funny anymore. The foolish kid was making trouble for me. Somehow she had this mad obsession about vampires. I had to talk to her. So that night I started over for her place, but before I arrived, I ran into her by accident on the path. Oh. Oh, you startled me. Sorry, Nancy. I didn't mean to frighten you. But say, I've been looking for you. Let's take a walk, shall we? Well, um, really, Mr. King, I have a date. Only for a few minutes, my dear, and why so formal? Call me Walter. By the way, I seem to have a speck in my eye. Have you a mirror in your purse? A mirror? Why, yes. Uh, uh, here it is. Oh, good. Let's see. Ah. There, I've got it. Oh, thank you. You looked into the mirror. Of course. And I found that hemlock on my doorknob last night, too. Oh, don't look so startled, Nancy. I know all about your ideas. You thought I was a vampire, didn't you? Just because I work all day and eat in restaurants and walk at night. But you're wrong. You know that now, don't you? I look in mirrors and touch hemlock and all the rest. Yes, I, I see. I, I guess you think I'm an awful fool, Walter. Not at all. I think you're a very lovely girl. I wish it wasn't so dark out here so I could see your hair. You have beautiful hair, Nancy. Look, the moon is rising. I can see you now. Nancy, you aren't afraid of me anymore. No. Walter, I... I never was afraid. Not really. I, 
I just thought up all this vampire stuff to, to make you notice me. And besides, all vampires are tall and dark and, and handsome, like you. You're a very clever little girl, Nancy. Very clever. Only I... I wish you hadn't gone to the police today. Police? Then you know? Yes. I found that out, too. A search warrant for my house. Oh, but but that was all a joke. And you aren't really a vampire, so it doesn't matter. When they come, we'll laugh at them. I'll laugh at them. You won't. Walter, what are you doing? Let go of me. Walter, what's happening to you? You're changing. Walter, too bad you were such a meddling little fool, Nancy. I can't let you get away now. It would spoil everything. You guessed too much. Oh, Walter, let me go. Walter, oh, good heaven. Then it is true. You are a vampire. No, my dear. I'm not a vampire. I'm just a werewolf. You have just heard Craig Dennis in The Boogeyman Will Get You. Written by Robert Block, author of stories in Weird Tales magazine. The original music was conceived and played by Romel Fay. In just a moment, we'll tell you about the next story in... Stay tuned for terror. In the meantime... Yes, ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned for terror. Stay tuned for thrills and excitement. Listen to Craig Dennis in Lizzie Borden Took an Axe. Written by Robert Block for Weird Tales magazine and adapted by the author especially for this program. You'll hear it now if you... Stay tuned for terror.
And now, here is Craig Dennis in Lizzie Borden Took an Axe. Morning Bulletin. Jim Daly speaking. Jim. Jim, help me. Anita, what's the matter? I, I can't tell you, Jim. But, but it's happened. Oh, come out at once. You, you must help me. That's how it started. On a hot morning in July, with Anita's fear-filled voice pleading with me over the telephone. I left the office, got out the car, and raced down the long, lonely road leading to that house in the hills. I didn't know what I might find when I reached that house. Anything could happen there with Anita locked up all alone with her crazy guardian. The thought of my fiancé alone with that madman almost terrified me. For old Gideon Godfrey was insane. That's what I was afraid of. Anita told me that her uncle was hexing her, putting the curse of the evil eye on her. Nonsense, of course. Anita was too intelligent to believe such superstitions. But living there all alone under the power of that demented man, her sanity was going, too. I could see it. Lately, she had told me about something black. Something black that came into her bedroom at night. It was a sort of trailing mist, but it had a face and a voice. Both were horrible. It seemed to whisper to her when she was asleep and... And she would fight off the inky tentacles that clutched her body and wake up, screaming. She called it an incubus, a night demon. She said Gideon Godfrey sent it to her. Yes, I had good reason to be afraid. A cunning maniac and a frightened girl, alone together in a lonely house, and now that phone call. When I pulled up before the house, I jumped out and made for the door. I didn't knock, but walked right in. Anita stood in the parlor at the far side of the room, waiting. She said nothing, just held out her arms. I moved across the room to embrace her, but as I walked, I stumbled over something. I looked down and saw what I had stumbled over. The body of Gideon Godfrey lay on the floor. The head split open and crushed to a bloody pulp. Jim, Jim, help me. You must help me, Doc. Of course I'll help you, but what happened? Well, it... It was hot this morning. I was out in the barn. I... I felt tired. I dozed off in the hayloft. Then all at once I woke up and came into the house. I found my uncle lying here. Wasn't there any noise? Nobody around? Not a soul. Somebody killed him with an axe. But where is the axe? The axe? I, I don't know. It should be by the body of someone killed him. Well, just a minute. Jim, Jim, where are you going? I'm going to call the police. Oh, no, Jim. Don't you see? If you call them, they'll think... I did it. Yes, that's right. It's a pretty flimsy story, isn't it, Anita? If we only had a weapon fingerprints or footprints or clues. You're sure you were out in the barn when this happened? Oh, yes. Can't you remember more than that? No, it, 
Oh, so confused. I had one of my dreams, you know. The black thing came. I seem to remember I went out there for fishing sinkers. Fishing sinkers? In the barn? Listen to me. You're not Anita Loomis. You're Lizzie Borden. Yes. She was like Lizzie Borden. I told her the story then. The story of Lizzie Borden. It was like the old jingle that began running through my brain. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 whacks. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. They had accused Lizzie Borden of murdering her parents one hot summer day after she came in from sleeping in the haymow. They said she took an axe to them. It was a famous case, and now Anita was shuddering in my arms. Oh, Jim. Jim, don't tell me stories like that. Are you trying to compare me to that woman? Are you hinting that I took an axe to my uncle? I'm not hinting anything. Just pointing out how similar your case is to Lizzie Borden's. Maybe that's the explanation of of her case, too. Maybe she was possessed of a demon. Maybe the black spirit of murder descended upon her when she slept. Told her to wake up and take an axe and... Take it easy. Take it easy now, Anita. Stop it. There are no such things. You're, you're just upset. You've got to think this thing out now. Eventually, we must call the police. We can't get around that. But right now, the thing to do is try and find that axe. We started to search for the murder weapon then. We covered every room. There was no axe. Finally, I sent Anita to look upstairs while I went over the parlor again. There was nothing. My head began to swim. It was hot, quiet. There was only silence and that body on the floor with its ghastly grin. And then, all at once, I saw it. It was like a cloud, a black cloud. But it wasn't a cloud. It was a face, a face covered by a mask of wavering smoke. A mask that leered and pressed closer. I couldn't move. Then I heard something swish. I turned. It was Anita. As I grasped her wrists, she screamed and fainted. The black cloud over her face disappeared, oozed into air. As she fell, I pried something loose from her rigid hands. It was a blood-stained axe. I put her down on the sofa and went into the other room. I carried the axe with me. No sense in taking chances. I trusted Anita, but not that thing. Not that black thing that swirled up like smoke to take possession of a living brain and make it lust to kill. In the other room, I phoned the police and sat down to wait. What could we tell them? The truth? They wouldn't believe it. Wouldn't believe that an incubus could enter a human body and make it attempt a murder. But I knew how it must have entered into her... Made her kill Gideon Godfrey? I felt the cool axe blade in my hand as I leaned back. The verse kept going in my head. Lizzie Borden took an axe. 
that? I woke with a start. At first, I thought the police had arrived. And I realized it was thunder. A heat storm was breaking. I blinked and got up from the chair. Then I realized that something was missing. The axe was gone from my hands. Anita! She must have awakened while I slept. Come in here and stolen the axe again. Yes. What a fool I was to sleep. A demon. It had come back to her. Entered into her. I faced the door. Saw the trail of blood. It was true. I ran into the other room. Then I gasped with relief. For Anita was still lying on the couch. I looked at the trail of blood on the floor. For the first time, I noticed that it seemed to lead away from her, not towards her. What did it mean? It meant she wasn't possessed of the demon now while she slept. Maybe, maybe the demon came to me when I dozed off. I was trying to remember. Where was the axe? Where could it be now? Then I knew, knew everything, knew that the demon had entered me while I slept, knew what I had done, because I saw that axe now, crystal clear, that axe buried to the hilt in the top of Anita's head. You have just heard Craig Dennis in Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, adapted for radio by Robert Block from his story in Weird Tales magazine. The original music on this program was conceived and played by Romel Fay. In just a moment, we'll tell you about the next story in... Stay tuned for terror. In the meantime...
When he stuck them sideways out of the bed, his legs felt as if they were doing a new thing, something they didn't understand. Dress quickly now, said Mamma. It's easy to catch cold after being so long in bed. I shall call your sister to help you. It was hard to keep upright. His legs were still sore in the places where they bent, his arms too, when he held them up to go through the sleeves. Feel funny, said his sister Gladys. Hold on to the bedpost while I fasten these buttons. Why, Raymond, I do believe you've grown taller in bed, dear. He saw a face low down in the great wardrobe mirror. For a moment, everything in him stopped. A terrible, thin face with perfectly round, shiny eyes, shadows you could almost see through, that belonged to a thing, not a person. Dull, dull, tangled hair. Well, how do you look? said Gladys. She was putting a kind of jolliness into her voice. Her head came down beside his to see. She was healthy, different only in the way all people looked in mirrors. Mamma brought out his green suit with the white curly collar and laid it on the bed. He watched little creases being smoothed from its special cloth. Is it Sunday? he said. Lines folded deeper in Mamma's face, her bright eyes fixed on his so hard that he felt guilty and blinked several times. No, she said in a low voice, but you're to wear it today. I'm taking you to have your photograph made. Gladys squeezed him. The doctor says you're a lot better now, Raymond. Won't it be nice? He clutched her warm arm. Sideways through Gladys's hair, he could see Mamma standing still, watching. Silly, silly little boy, he's frightened, said Gladys. I had it done last year, you know that, and Mamma has, everybody has. There, funny boy. She brushed his hair till it was smooth and cut off some little pieces and put them in an envelope. Glad, he said. What are you crying for? But instead of answering, she began to dab his face gently with a puff of her own powder. It was cold downstairs. Everything felt hard and big, and the linoleum looked like frozen water. Button his overcoat up, said Mamma. Stay quietly in that chair, Raymond, until the cab comes. Close to the fire. The yellow tiled grate turned onto him an unfamiliar, quivering heat that made him blink often. Soon the little pains in his knees died out. He was damp and hot inside his clothes. You must behave well, said Mamma. Do exactly as the gentleman directs. Keep very still for him. That's the most important thing. Are you warm? The cab, Gladys called. It's here. She came into the room. Oh, how much better he looks. He'll be sorry to leave such a nice fire, won't you, Raymond? They got into the cab. There was a strange smell of its leatheriness, and some kind of scent and pipe smoke were in the thick blue cloth of the seat the padded walls. He sat between Mamma and Gladys and watched the tall roof stream past the window. Isn't it fun, said Gladys. Listen to the horse's feet trotting as fast as he can go, and all especially for this little boy. When they climbed down the cab's iron steps, it was in a street with shops and high buildings. Mamma stopped to talk to the driver. Come along, said Gladys. Up we go. 
Let me help you, old Mr. Shaky Legs. There were many stairs inside the building. Whenever they stopped, they saw more leading upwards. Must be growing while we climb them, Gladys panted. She had both arms tightly round him, almost carrying him. From below, Mama was calling softly and crossly, Gladys, wait a moment, if you please. We must all go in together. They came to the last of the stairs, and there was a door that was partly made of glass with printed letters on it. Come, said Mama. The man inside wore black clothes. There was no hair on his head, and he had yellow eyes that moved in a sort of liquid. He said, So this is the little man, a bright chap. In no time you'll be as fit as a fiddle, hmm? He held a hand out to Raymond. The fingers were dark brown, and some of the nails had split until you could see into the cracks. Shake hands with the gentleman, Raymond, said Mama. He could do nothing. Not altogether surprising, said the man. Hmm? And made a noise like a laugh, but he wasn't pleased. Chemicals ruin the hands, madame. Sit down in this nice chair, little man. He began to talk to Mama in a whisper, glancing sideways. The room was very big, with wide windows and a ceiling, but they were painted streaky white and no sky showed through them. Tall, shining things made of wood and glass and yellow metal stood everywhere. Now, let us begin. The little fellow's overcoat off, please, madame. Then Raymond was on a different chair. His legs hung down from the huge leather seat. The man picked up his hand and pressed it onto the chair's cold, knobbed arm as if it belonged there. A polished table stood close by. On it were a book made of leather and a shiny plant like Mama's. Genuine antiques, the man was saying to Mama. The floral background is hand-painted in oils. Tidy his hair, Gladys, whispered Mama. A burning brightness came high up. His eyes itched and watered. The man said, Don't look at the lights, little fellow, and moved metal things that clicked under a black cloth. Raymond shivered. He seemed to be in another place, feeling nothing, like being asleep and not dreaming. He could hear Gladys blowing her nose somewhere behind the brightness. Ah, yes, said the man, busy jerking things in the dark. Doesn't he look a picture? <clears throat> he cleared his throat. Steady now, still as a mouse. See what I've got in my hand? And as if he was singing a little song. Keep quite, quite, quite. Still, clack, went his machine. Now again. When the lights went out at last, everything broke into spots of purple darkness. This very evening, madame, the man was saying. On one hand, he had a glove with a head like a monkey, without fail in the circumstances. His voice had a secret in it. I'm so very sorry. On the way downstairs, Raymond sneezed. He lay quietly in bed. When he moved, all the old pains jumped in his arms and legs, worse than weeks ago. His nose was running. For a time, the sun made slow, ready squares on the wallpaper. Then it disappeared. His heart began to hurry, bumping until it hurt. The bed seemed to shake. A tiny ticking noise began somewhere down among the springs, keeping time with his heart. The door opened. 
It was Gladys again. How now, dear, she said, and put her cheek against his forehead. The shivering stopped, and now he's too hot. Poor little sick Raymond. She sat on the bed. I've got a surprise for you, she said. Lie very still, and I'll show you. It's just this moment arrived. Look. She held something up, high above his chest. A reddish-brown picture. He knew the table in it. The huge chair, the book, the shiny plant from some time in the past. There, too, was that terrible face. After a moment, he turned to her. She smiled and nodded. It's the photograph, darling. Isn't it nice? He twisted his head away, and his neck ached. Tears came out of his eyes. He felt angry and frightened, as if he had lost part of himself. Gladys was tightening the bedclothes round him. Poor dear. Does it hurt to look up? I'll put the photo here on the mantelpiece and light the candle so that you can see it all the time. We're going to have another big one in a frame to hang downstairs. Mama is so pleased. And... Her voice turned down and trembled. Suddenly he felt himself held tightly. Raymond. Gladys was crying again. And a tear ran down the inside of his collar. Oh, my little... And she squeezed him until he gasped. Then she ran out of the room, and the door thudded. He felt cold and small. Then in the same instant, he was enormous. His head stretched from the pillow until it touched the walls. His huge hands were pressing down through the bed to the floor. From far below came the ringing click of the bedspring, like distant hoofbeats. On the mantelpiece was the little brown picture child. His face was white and horrible and still. He clung to his chair and stared at Raymond. The candle was too bright to look at it. When it flickered, the whole room bobbed. Waves of fright rushed over him up through the bed. His ears were bursting with the noise. Keep still, said something inside him. Keep quite, quite, quite still. His head was changing its shape because it was so heavy, and the beating, bubbling heart climbed up to meet it. Keep quite, quite, quite still, said a voice. It sounded like his own, but this time it wasn't inside his head. It was outside, close to his ear. He twisted himself through the hot clothes, crying because it hurt, and looked. He nearly screamed with terror. By the bed stood the picture child, alive, in the green suit, but now it was reddish-brown. His face was the narrow photograph face, like a hollow china thing. Still, said the boy, keep quite, quite, quite still, little man. He put out a hand and laid it on the rumpled sheet brown fingers, and the nails were split wide open. Your heart's going to burst, he said. The whole of the bedroom roared and crackled, yet at the same time it was utterly quiet. The boy smiled, little bony teeth. I'm going to have your tops, he said.
the new ones, too. The bedspring kept time like a great bell. And in this bed will be me. Just keep quite, quite still. You won't be anything at all. Feel it bursting. Downstairs they were arguing. Crass folly. She twisted a handkerchief in her fingers and tried to hold her lips firm, but they trembled. Kindly remember, Doctor, that I am the child's mother. I wanted this memory of him to keep more than anything you could ever understand. Nonsense, madam, said the doctor. Think I wouldn't have told you if he was dying? But now I can't answer for what you may have done today. Let me see him at once. Halfway up the first flight of stairs, they heard the cries in his bedroom and ran the rest of the way. The doctor threw the door open. Raymond! He was crouching near the window in his nightshirt. But over it, he had pulled a jacket of his best green suit. The trousers were clasped to his chest. His eyes were bright with delirium, staring towards the bed. I won't! I won't be still! The screaming went on, hoarse and terrified. He didn't seem to see them. From the window ledge, he snatched a picture book and held it tightly. I won't! No! No! I won't go on the mantelpiece! presents The Strange Dr. Weird. Good evening. Come in, won't you? You seem a bit nervous. Perhaps the cemetery outside this house has upset you. But there are things far worse than cemeteries. Such things as dark, forbidding swamps, stretching for hundreds of miles and inhabited by snakes and mosquitoes and alligators, as in the story I want to tell you tonight. A story I call Death in the Everglades. My story begins in the vast shadowy wastes of the Florida Everglades. A small dugout glides through the dark swamp water, pulled along by a weather-beaten guide. The guide's passengers, Gerald Drake and his wife Kitty, sit nervously in the center of the dugout, subdued by their strange and uncanny surroundings. Gerald, how much further do we have to go? It's been two hours now since we left the mainland. I'll see. Guide, 
How much further is it to my uncle's home? It ain't much further. Just a small piece. Gerald, are you sure your Uncle Jason has money? Well, up until my mother died a year ago, Uncle Jason was sending her $500 a month. And he owns thousands of acres of valuable Florida property. If he has money, why should he choose to live here all alone in these horrible swamps? Because he's an eccentric. Oh, Gerald, please, let's turn back. This horrible dark swamp with its alligators and snakes frightens me. I have a feeling that something dreadful will happen if we don't turn back. Don't be a fool, Kitty. We can't turn back. We're broke, do you understand that? Uncle Jason is our last hope. We must go on. Why have you come here, Gerald? Well, after all, Uncle Jason, I am your only living relative, and, well, I wanted to find out how you were getting along. Gerald worries about your living here alone in the swamp. Oh, I'll yeah. always live here in the swamp. Always. Quiet and peaceful here. I have my friends. Your, your friends? Yes. Didn't you see them as you came here? Singing in the trees, swimming in the water. I know them all. They're my friends. They protect me from harm like true friends do. Yes, yes, of course. Uncle, I, I just... I want... know why you come here. You want money. That's why you come here, isn't it? Well, well yes. You, you see, Uncle Jason, we... we... Get out! Get out, you hear? I won't give you a cent. Not a cent. But, Uncle Jason, after all, you must remember that I'm your only... Leave my house at once! Get out! We can't. The guide won't be back until four o'clock this afternoon to take us to the mainland. Yeah. Very well, then. You must stay here until he comes. I'm going out now, and when I come back at sundown, I don't want to find either of you here. Trying to break the lock on this metal cash box. Cash box? Yes, my darling. A short talk with Uncle Jason convinced me that he kept his money someplace in this house. It wasn't too difficult to find his cash oh, box. If my dear uncle won't part with his money willingly, he's going to have to part with it unwillingly. My, my cash box! What are you doing with it? Uncle Jason! You're, uh, you're home a bit early, aren't you, Uncle Jason? You're trying to rob me. You're like all the others. Well, I won't let you rob me. Give me my box. Give me my box. I don't box. like to do this, Uncle Jason, but I must have that money, understand? Come on now. You want me to kill me. But you'll never get away with my box. Give me that. I find you in the swamp. They'll see you don't. You'll never leave this swamp. Never you. Very well, Uncle. If you insist. You let go of him. Let go or you'll kill him. That's exactly what I'm doing. You're the one who's never going to leave the swamps, Uncle. You're going to stay here with your friends forever. While I go back to the mainland with your money. There. Gerald. Gerald, you've killed him. You've killed him. They'll send us to prison for this. Don't be a fool. Anyone should come looking for Uncle Jason, they, they won't find a trace of him. What do you mean? I'm going to get rid of dear Uncle Jason. <laughs> yes. Give me a hand with this body, Kitty. We're taking Uncle Jason to his friend. This is far uh, enough, darling. Uh, just uh, set him down here. Here? By the water's edge? Yeah. It's a little perfectly. Let's drop his legs. Yeah. That's it. There we are. Sure, you are just going to leave him here, are you? Why, of course, darling. Uncle Jason's friends will look after him. His friends? Oh, yes. We'll go over there. See him swimming this way? Alligators. Monster alligators. They're coming up out of the water. Yes, so they are. Look. One of them is crawling up to Uncle Jason's body. 
He's going to... Yes. Goodbye, Uncle Jason. Our mystery will be continued in a moment. But, Dr. Weird, if, uh, if you'll come over here, I uh, have a mystery of my own. Mystery is my business, young man. All right, uh, here's the clue. The number five. Five dead men? Oh, no, I'm afraid you're wrong, Doctor. I'm talking about the famous Adam Five, the quality hat made of all fur felt, available at the thousands of Adam hat stores and authorized dealers all over the country for only $5. And it's far from dead. In fact, it's the liveliest number you've ever seen, mister. Why not step into an Adam hat shop and prove it to yourself? Try on your size in a famous Adam Five. Examine its snappy style, its lively color, the look of distinction. You don't have to be a master detective to see that in quality and style, an Adam is America's top hat. Now, Dr. Weird. And now I'll finish my story, Death in the Everglades. An hour after Uncle Jason's death, Gerald and Kitty sat on Jason's dock waiting for the guide to arrive. While they waited, Gerald tried to break open the metal cash box, but without success. Suddenly, they heard a shout. Hello there! Sorry if I kept you folks waiting. And just hop in the dugout. We're on our way back to the mainland. It's getting dark in a few hours. You don't want to be caught in the... What are you staring at? That box you got there. That's the box your uncle keeps his money in. I've seen it when he's giving me money for provisions. What are you doing with it? That's my business, and I don't have to explain it to you. You do if you want me to take you in my dugout of the mainland. Perhaps this will help you change your mind about that. A gun? Yeah. Now, if you value your life, you'll have us on the mainland within two hours. Two hours, you understand? In two hours, they're almost up. Why haven't we reached the mainland? It's already dark. It's just a small piece beyond this island we're passing. Hear that, Kitty? In a few minutes, we'll be on the mainland. But, Gerald, the guide will go to the local sheriff and tell him everything. Don't you worry about the guide. I'll take care of him. That fool! Why's he gone so close to the island? Have us a growl if he doesn't Gerald. want to... Gerald! he's gone! He's not in the boat! Gone? I... You're right. He must have swung on an overhead branch as we were passing the island. Gerald! Gerald, there he is! He's standing in that small clearing on the island. Find your own way to the mainland, you thieving murderer! I'll never take you there! Oh, Gerald, what will we do without him? Kitty, get hold of yourself. We're going to reach the mainland safely. Oh, but how can we find our way? The sun's setting, it is already dark here in the swamp. We may be miles from safety. Miles of these tiny winding streams. These horrible cypress trees growing together over our heads, so we can't see where we're going. Stop it, Kitty! Listen to me. We're not in any danger, do you hear me? I admit that we can't get out of the swamp tonight. All we have to do is stay right here in the dugout until morning. When it's light again... No, no, we'll never find our way out. Even the guides get lost in the Everglades sometimes. Anyway, anyway, they won't let us go. They'll stop us just like he said. Who'll stop us? Uncle Jason's friends. Listen to them. All around us. Waiting for us. Out there in the water. They're coming for us. Kitty, you mustn't say that. We're going to make it, do you hear me? And we'll be rich. There's a fortune in this cash box. I'll open it for you. Then you'll see how rich we are. It's, it's a hard lock to pick off. Maybe I can shoot it open. 
Kitty, the lock's broken. Kitty, look. Money. Money? Yeah. It's 50, 100, 150, 200, 210. You mean there's only $210 in that box? Yeah, but look, look. There's a paper in the box. It'll probably tell us where the rest of the money's hidden. Come on, let's, let's see. Ah, it's a real estate deed. 20,000 acres. Assessed value... Assessed value... $1,000. No, it can't be. Look, your uncle was a wealthy man. He had money and land. He has $210 and 20,000 acres of worthless swamp. There must be more than this. There's got to be. Stand up, Gerald. Look around you. 20,000 acres of worthless swamp. It's all yours, Gerald. If we committed murder to get it... Kitty, sit down. Sit down. Do you hear me? You'll turn a dug out over. They're lost in your vast kingdom full of snakes and alligators. Why don't you ask one of your loyal subjects how to get to the mainland? Go ahead, Gerald. Kitty, let go. Let's turn it over. yards from safety in the jaws of Uncle Jason's friends, the alligators. You know, it occurs to me that perhaps Uncle Jason buried his fortune someplace in the swamps. Uh, perhaps you'd be interested in going with me to the Everglades to search for him. Oh, you have to go now. Too bad. But perhaps you'll drop in on me again soon. I'm always home. Just Look for the house on the other side of the cemetery. The house of Dr. Weird. Tales of the Supernatural. There are more things in heaven and earth than I dreamed of in your philosophy. Tales of the Supernatural. Tales weird, strange, uncanny. Brought to you from that twilight world beyond the shadows. A world but dimly explored for all our lamps of science. Tonight we bring you an adventure which befell two ordinary people in this present year. And which we have called... I shall rise again.
ten o'clock on a still summer's night. A young couple sat in a smart single-seater, looking at the dark outline of a house set back in a ragged garden. Thomas Mason, successful architect, and his pretty wife, Ellen, have been house hunting. So this is the house. Yes, but Ellen... Well? Don't think I'm being a wet blanket, honey, but I, I wouldn't expect too much from this place. Why not? Looks all right. According to what Bill Latimer tells me, it's been empty for donkey's years. Knowing how difficult it is to get a house, there's obviously something wrong with it. Tom, you make me tired. But, Ellen... You never wanted to come and see this house from the very beginning. Just because you think it's too far from the city. Well, Latimer says that's why the last tenants left. Too isolated and out of the way. Darling, after living in pokey flats with somebody else's radio in my ears all day, I'm going to welcome a little isolation. You might have to welcome leaky roofs and bad drains, too. Oh, you can soon fix that. Darling, I'm an architect, not a plumber. <laughs> At the moment, you're a bear with a sore head. You know you're doing everything possible to put me off this place just because you'll have to drive a few extra miles to town each day. But... Tom, I've made up my mind that if I like this place, we can at least try it out for a few months. Then, if you find it too far, we'll see what can be done. Now, let me get out, Tom. All right. <clears throat> Oh, I'll bring that torch from the car pocket, Ellen. Oh, all right, darling. I cut the light off in this house months ago. Here you are. Now, this way. Why we had to come dragging all the way out here, I don't know. Darling. Ah, here's the gate. Complete with nameplates, eh? Hmm. Shine the torch on it. Resurgum. It's Latin. Means I shall rise again. I shall rise again? Strange name for a house. Oh, don't you believe it? A client of mine once built a house and called it Bedside Manor. <laughs> I don't believe it. That sounds like one of those crazy stories of your friend Bill Latimer. Ah, here's the door. Have you bought the keys? Yes, here. The one for the front door is marked with a tag. Let's see. That's it. It's kind of moldy. Well, you can't expect air conditioning in a place no one's used for years. <coughs> By the dust everywhere, I'd say it was centuries. This seems to be the main hall. Mm. We'll see what's in that room ahead. I say, Tom, just listen to the way our footsteps echo. It's a heavy atmosphere. Plays tricks with your senses. Even your perfume smells stronger in here. Perfume? That lilac stuff. But I'm not wearing any perfume. The whole place reeks of it. Can't you smell it? No. It's getting stronger every minute. Oh, there must be a lilac tree blooming in the garden. Tom, wait for me. I am waiting for you. But... But what, honey? Oh, I think that I could have sworn I heard footsteps in that room ahead. Oh, darling, you're over tired. I see. There's the palm of my hand. Oh, Tom, what a lovely big room. Darling, think what a splendid lounge it would make. Look, now let me see. We could have thorn carpet on the floor. Nice cream walls. Good pictures, of course. Flowers in tall white vases and books over there, eh? Mm hmm. Oh, and Tom, look at that fireplace. You're going to need that in the winter. Yes. You know, it's quite chilly in here even now. Oh, I do hope the house isn't damp. I couldn't live in this room. It's as cold as charity. It gets the sun. Well, look, there's another room across there. Oh, it might make a small study for me. Let's explore. Mm -hmm. 
What the devil's that? What? Listen. Now, if I didn't know we were alone in this house, I'd swear that someone was stopping a razor in that little room over there. If you heard anything, darling, it was probably rats. Ellen. Well? Let's call it a night. We've seen enough. Enough? Why, we haven't even started to explore the house. Tom, what's the matter with you? I don't know. First that curious perfume and then that sound. Ellen, I think there's something wrong in this house. Darling, there's nothing wrong that a few hundred pounds can't put right. And you can't make me nervous by... Tom? Now can you hear it? Yes. What does it mean? Shh. <laughs> well, there's nothing to snigger about. Helen, I didn't... Oh, don't be silly, Tom. I heard you. You laughed almost behind my head. Helen. Well? We're not alone in this house. What do you mean? I heard that chuckle, too. It seemed to me to come from inside that little room. Tom, is this some joke? Joke? What were you and Bill Latimer laughing about over the phone this afternoon? And why did you suddenly stop when I came into the room? Now, Ellen... I shouldn't be at all surprised if you and Bill cooked this up between you. Pretend the house was haunted just to scare me off by it. Oh, don't be silly. It's just the kind of fool thing Bill Latimer would do. But I'm warning you, Tom, I mean to explore every foot of this place, and we're starting with that small room. Now, come on. Go on, open the door. I can't. Tom... I'm trying to, I tell you, but it, it's not locked. It's almost as though something was holding it. Oh, darn, now I've dropped the torch and it's gone out. Oh, you clumsy idiot. Well, strike a match. Okay, let's see. Ah. Gosh. Just look at that. Now the door's wide open. Yes, it was open all the time, and you know it. Now, come on. Oh, you couldn't work in here, Tom. This room's like a vault. You'd freeze without... What's that? What, Tom? That sound. It's in here louder than before. Tom, you don't expect me to believe... Why, Tom, you're right. It is here. There's a constant swish. Tom, what is it? What is it? Helen. Helen, keep calm. But how can I? I'm going to find out what it is. It must be something. There must be some logical explanation. Well, let's get out of here. No, Tom, No. There's some explanation to all this, some perfectly simple explanation. Oh, Ellen, for heaven's sake, stop pacing up and down. I tell you, you won't find anything. Go down. What's the matter, Tom? What's the matter? Let's another one, quickly. Oh, I just... Tom, it's dropping. It stopped. Yes, Ellen. It stopped. Oh, thank heaven. I was beginning to think I was going mad. <gasps> Tom! Oh, it's all right. The match gone out again. Ella. What's the matter, Tom? They are crouching in the corner. What? What? Something. Can't you see it, Ella? Something formless, shapeless. Tom, don't be a fool. But it's there, I tell you, there. What are you trying to do? Tom, take your hands away. I'm not touching you. There's someone holding me. Ellen. Ellen. I can't get free. Help me, Tom. Help me. Ellen, try. Try. Break free. Oh. Oh. oh the smell of the things everywhere. Corruption and decay. Tom, for pity's sake. Ellen, run for the door. Run. Hurry. Hurry! Oh. oh, it's all right, Ellen. We're outside. Oh. I've got you tied to get to the car. Oh, oh Tom. Lean on me, darling. That's right. 
Oh, here's the gate. Oh. Ellen, Ellen! Oh, gosh, she's fainted. That fool Latimer. He's gone too far. If anything happens to Ellen, I'll break his neck. Latimer! Latimer, is that you? What's going on here? Who are you? I'm Constable Withers, sir. Local of this district. I was driving past and saw the flash of lights in the old place. And who may you be, might I ask? I'm Thomas Mason, and this is my wife. She's had a very nasty shock. Nor do I wonder if you've both been foolish enough to go inside that place. What do you mean by that? Last tenants only stayed three days. Before that, it was empty ever since they hanged him. Him? Roger Pierce. Ain't to tell me you never heard of the Lilac Lady murder? Happened five years ago. Five years ago, I was bombing Berlin. Mrs. Pearson, known as the Lilac Lady around about here for the perfume she used, was carrying on with a friend of her husband. So one night, he's dropped up his razor, he cut her throat. Stopped up his... And then he tried to hang himself in that there little room off the guard. But it took Newgate to do the job properly. Now, sir, can I help you with your good lady? She looks as if a drop of brandy wouldn't do her any harm. George Whiskey, so it'll be as you think, dinner. <laughs> oh, there you are, Latimer. I thought I'd find you at the club this morning. Oh, Tom, I'm sorry. I should jolly well think so. I know he arranged that business last night between us, but hang it all, you went beyond a joke. Last night? That was a filthy trick you played hiding in that little room and grabbing Ellen in the dark. You might have given a heart failure. Especially as you must have known about that murder. What murder? Oh, come off it, old son. You did all the acting you wanted to last night. But Tom. Of course you knew about that murder. How else could you have arranged that lilac scent on the razor stop? I say, what's the matter? Didn't your girl give you my message? Message what, miss? I rang you at about seven o'clock last night. My sister was taken seriously ill, and I had to rush her to hospital and stand by all night. What I'm trying to tell you, Tom, is that I never went near that house last night. You believe in the supernatural? What lies beyond the shadow? Is it fact or fantasy? Next week, same time, same station, we will present another story of the supernatural and the supernormal, dramatizing the fantasies and the mysteries of the unknown as we take you on a journey into fear in Tales of the Supernatural. Heart Notes in the Mist Years ago, I lived for a few months in the little town of Pass Christiane at a tavern called the Inn by the Sea. On hot nights that summer, just as the sun seemed to be dropping into the waters to the west, my host would ask us to come aboard his red-sailed sloop, and we would skim the rippling surface of the Gulf of Mexico for a few hours before returning to our beds. 
Among those who sailed with us on those evenings were gentlemen who had been born in past Christianity. Sometimes as the moon climbed the sky, they would tell us a legend of the old town. They said that when their great-grandfathers were young, the whole populace was awakened on a foggy night by a strange reddish glare far out on the gulf. Voices called through the streets, urging the young men to launch their boats and go to the rescue of a ship burning on the horizon. Out into the misty darkness, the boats sped, guided by the orange flames in the distance. As they neared their goal, the crews heard music drifting over the still black water. To their incredulous ears came the sound of harp notes and a melody that one of the elder rowers recognized as an ancient Portuguese love song. It seemed to come from the very heart of the flames. When the leading boat was so near that those in it could hear the crackle of the racing fire, there was a sudden explosion and the ship went down, leaving only a few charred timbers floating on the water. The would-be rescuers circled about but found no survivors. Shocked by the tragedy, they returned to the shore, and there, to their surprise, they came upon a beached lifeboat in which the captain of the ship and four of his men had made their escape. The captain was a handsome young man, genial and charming, and he made so favorable an impression on the hospitable folk of past Christiane that they welcomed him to their homes, gave parties in his honor, and urged him to give up the sea and live among them. The captain told them that he was touched by their warm welcome, and before long he announced that he would accede to their entreaties. A month later he bought a plantation of many acres. The windows of its pillared big house looked out upon the gulf. Here he lived in luxury, attended by the four men who had been his companions. It was said that he had paid for his new property in golden Brazilian coins. All went well with the captain for more than a year. He bought a number of slaves, and he gave such elaborate parties that he became the leading social figure of the aristocratic little town. Then a visitor from New Orleans arrived at one of the neighboring mansions and almost immediately died of yellow fever, which had been raging in his native city. Soon the dread disease was spreading over past Christiane, and among its many victims was one of the captain's four accomplices. The doctor who attended the unfortunate man found him out of his mind with fever and heard him confess a horrible crime. In his delirium, the man said that a Brazilian gentleman had shipped aboard the captain's vessel at a South American port, bringing with him his beautiful wife and his entire fortune which had been converted into gold coins and packed in a stout wooden chest. The Brazilian had told the charming captain of the gold, and the latter had no sooner heard of it than he determined to acquire it. He selected the four men of his crew whom he most trusted and informed them of his purpose. They would murder the rich passenger, he said, and load the money chest into the one small boat aboard. Then, after setting fire to the ship, they would row to shore with their loot and leave the rest of the crew and their victim's wife to die in the flames. They had carried out their scheme on the foggy night when the people of past Christiane had seen the ship burning. 
The dying seaman said that as the captain and his accomplices rode away from the blazing vessel, the wife of the murdered man, realizing her doom, had brought up from her cabin the harp with which she was accustomed to entertain her husband, and had played on it an old Portuguese ballad until the explosion had sent all on board to their deaths. After the death of his fever-stricken patient, the doctor realized that his report of words spoken in delirium could not be accepted as positive proof, but he told his friends what he had heard, and the captain suddenly found himself a marked man. He planned another elaborate party, and not one of his former friends accepted his invitation. Suspicious that his secret had been discovered, he decided to flee past Christiane at once with his stolen gold. He rose from his bed at midnight, and taking his spade and a lantern with him, he ran down to the shore to unearth the chest which he had buried beneath a gnarled old oak. Unaware that he was being constantly watched, the murderer did not realize that the doctor and his friends had seen the glimmer of the lamp and had crept secretly to a nearby cove to watch his movements. Descendants of the watchers on that night say that their grandfathers have told them that as the captain uncovered the chest, an orange light appeared on the horizon and increased until the whole night seemed to be tinged with it. Then suddenly they heard the creak of oarlocks and saw a ghastly crew of skeletons rowing in perfect rhythm towards the shore. In the stern sat a beautiful, dark-eyed woman playing a strange and lovely melody on a golden harp. Apparently the captain saw this vision too, for he stood up quickly and then fell upon the ground. When the watchers reached him, the boat and its occupants had vanished, and the captain lay dead, his hands clutched convulsively about golden coins. This is why, so people who have lived long at past Christian say, on foggy summer nights those who look out to sea may sometimes behold a glare far out on the water and hear harp notes drifting through the mist. That's the show tonight. I want to thank you all for listening. It was a little bit longer tonight, but I hope you all enjoyed it. Now remember, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror 1970 or you can find me on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd or on Twitter at Radio Show Nerd 1 and if you want to drop me a line say hello a request a suggestion a even a critique please feel free to email me at radioshownerd at gmail.com I also have a YouTube channel, Terra Radio. Please check it out. Subscribe, share, like the videos. Will be highly appreciated. Again, this is your host, Keith, aka the Radio Show Nerd, signing off. Hi, I'm Ann Rogers, and with me is my friend Sprightly Pool. Not just friend. Co-worker, assistant, confidant, Brightly Pool here. Now, I have something amazing to tell you. I'll start from the beginning. Back in 1941 through 1944, I had a radio show on NBC called Hot Copy. 
And when I was doing that, I was a newspaper reporter and a syndicated columnist. Now, just in case you don't know, hot copy is a phrase that is used by newspaper reporters when they write a story that is breaking news, especially big news. And that is why our show was called what it was called. So there were definitely some wild adventures. She's not kidding when she's talking about those wild adventures. I tell you, we've been in danger more times than I can count. Everything from crazy killers to tracking down Nazi spies, we ended up in some situations that were downright terrifying. So true, Sprightly. But near the end of 1944, our show was canceled due to some conflicting points of view with the sponsor. It was too dark and unladylike, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we're doing now is taking all those stories and bringing them back to life, adapted from the original scripts. That's a feat in itself, as nearly all the old audio is gone. So we're starting out fresh with some amazing voice actors. In fact, really fresh. Because, believe it or not, somehow... We haven't aged a day. <laughs> yes, it's true. Our new show is called Hot Copy Radio Theater. Listen, download, and subscribe to Hot Copy Radio Theater on Apple Podcasts and probably every other podcast platform that you can shake a stick at. New episodes on the 10th of each month.